0: today i'm speaking with tantum collins teddy as he's often called was assistant director for technology strategy at the white house office of science and technology policy back in 2021 and 2022 thanks for coming on the podcast Teddy. thank you so much for having me
1: the risk of autocratic lock-in due to ai a prompt that I think about
2: a lot that sometimes helps frame this is if you and I and 100 other people were on the first ship that was going to go settle Mars uh, and we were going to build a human civilization and we have to decide what does that government look like? And we have all of the technology available today. How do we think about choosing a subset of that design space? And the that space is huge and it includes absolutely awful things and mixed bag things and maybe some things that almost everyone would agree are really wonderful, or at least an improvement on the way that things work today. But that raises all kinds of tricky questions. And my concern is that if we don't approach these kinds of now that's obviously a, a thought experiment that's removed from the real world, here things are messier. But my concern is that if we don't approach sort of the evolution of collective decision making and government in a deliberate way we may end up inadvertently backing ourselves into a corner where we have ended up on some slippery slope and all of a sudden we have you know let's say autocracies on the global stage are strengthened relative to democracies. Mm.
0: Yeah I guess it's it's very natural to worry that uh, countries that are already autocratic would use these tools to uh, engage in a level of monitoring of of individuals that currently would be impractical. So you could just constantly be checking all of the messages that people are sending and receiving, <laughs> yeah, or like using exactly. the fact that yeah. we have microphones in almost every yes. room uh, to have these automatic automated systems detecting whether people are doing anything that is contrary to the wishes of the government, and that could just create a much greater degree of lock in even than there is now. Um, are you also worried about uh, these these kind of technologies being abused in countries like the United States or or the or the UK in the in the medium term?
2: I'm certainly not worried in the medium term about existing democracies like, the, let's say, the US and the UK becoming something that we would describe as autocratic. Mm. Perhaps like another way of reframing it would be, I worry that we've already left opportunities on the table and that the number of opportunities we will end up leaving on the table could grow, both to make government more effective in a sort of ideology agnostic sense, uh, right? Doing things on time and in ways that are affordable and so on. And secondly, uh, missing opportunities to make these institutions more democratic, which is, to say, to bind them to, like, reflective popular will, and that we can look at even at contemporary democracies, the, uh, as we were talking about before, sort of the bitrate of preference communication has remained more or less the same for a long time, while, as you noted, government capacity has expanded significantly. In, in that sense, we've sort of already lost some level of democratic oversight. And... Uh, This is something that, uh, no, I'm not worried about uh, these countries becoming the PRC, but I do think that there's lots of stuff that we could do to improve sort of the the degree to which we instantiate the principles of democracy.
1: What do people in government make of AI X-risk concerns? Governments is always a very big and distributed,
2: so I wouldn't say this is like an authoritative recounting. But I'm happy to give sort of my take from the sliver of things that I've I've seen. Yeah. Um. Obviously, the institution I'm most familiar with is the U.S. government. I think that to some extent this can generalize, um, especially for other closely allied governments. So let's say Five Eyes and uh, G Seven and so on. It is certainly the case that the amount of attention dedicated towards AI in government has increased significantly over the past couple of years, and that includes the amount of attention. Sort of even just proportionate, that there has been an increase in the consideration given to risks. Um, that includes things that people would categorize as X risk, as well as all kinds of um, regular, active, ongoing homes, algorithmic discrimination, interpretability issues, and so on. So all of this is getting more attention. I think, in particular, some of the things that people who are worried about X risk tend to focus on actually fit into pre existing national security priorities. Mm-hmm pretty well. Hmm. So, for instance, if we think about cyber-related X-risk having to do with AI or AI-related bio-risk, these are categories of homes that, although previously not mainly through the lens of AI-related stuff, there are plenty of institutions and people in the US government and in other governments that have been worried about those types of risks for a long time. And I think it's safe to say that almost everyone, for, for almost all of these, in almost all these domains, AI risk is now top of mind. Hmm. That doesn't mean that if you go into the White House, you will see people doing sort of open fill style, very rigorous rankings based on importance and neglectedness and tractability and so on. Um, and it doesn't mean that the people whose work ends up reducing these risks would even articulate it in the way that someone in, let, let's say, the EA community would. But I do think that increasingly a lot of this work in government sort of dovetails with those priorities, mm. if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that, that, that does make sense. I think it's also quite sensible that this is maybe the extinction risk or, or the like catastrophic risk that governments are turning their attention to first because it seems like uh, the potential misuse of large language models or other AI models uh, to help with bioterrorism or to yeah. development of bioweapons or to engage in cyber attacks. That seems like it's something that could be serious in the next few years. I guess I guess we don't know how serious it will be. We don't know how many people will, will actually try, but it does seem like an imminent threat. Um, and so people uh, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah, should yeah, be yeah, thinking yes. about what like yes. what can we do now? Yeah, exactly. And so, so uh,
2: you know, I'm happy to say that there are absolutely like smart, capable people working in government who are worried about those things. So right. if that helps I'm, you I'm, and the listeners <laughs> sleep easily at night. <laughs> well, I'm uh, sure they have got it covered.
1: Misconceptions about AI in China.
2: I think that a lot of news coverage of China tends to fluctuate between extremes. Uh, and this is true in AI as well as sort of like more broadly, where there there will be a hype cycle that is, you know, the rise of China is inevitable. And then there will be a hype cycle that says, ah, you know, a centralized system was never going to work. Why did we ever take this? <laughs> Why did we ever take this threat seriously? And of course, almost always the, the reality is somewhere in the middle. And I think that when China began making investments uh, in AI, in particular with the sort of 2017 release of this this report from the State Council that was AI focused, um, I think that that for a lot of people uh, was the first time that they began paying attention to what might. China-related AI things look like. Mm -hmm. And in some critical ways, China is, of course, different than the US and other Western countries. I think that initially there was a moment of of not fully appreciating how different the sort of um research culture and in particular the relationship between companies and the government is in China relative to Western countries. Mm -hmm. But now I worry that things have gone too far and that people have sort of these like caricatured versions in their mind of of what things look like in China. And so um there are many of these, but like to list a few, there is a meme that I think is uh, inaccurate and unhelpful that china can copy but not innovate Mm. Uh, and obviously both historically china's been responsible for like a huge amount of scientific innovation and also like again like you know the number of papers coming out of china uh on ai has increased significantly years more than any other country i mean there are loads of examples of like a very very impressive innovative scientific achievement coming out of china and in particular to cite jeff again um he has written an interesting paper that describes the difference uh, between sort of innovation and diffusion of technologies in terms of the effect it has on national power. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are some countries that historically played a big role in, for instance, uh, early industrial technology, but didn't manage to diffuse it across the country effectively enough to, for instance, make the most of it from a military perspective mm-hmm. um, uh, or economic growth. And there are others that did the, the inverse. Uh, and so in the 1800s, there was a lot of commentary that the U.S. was terrible at creating things, but was like, pretty good at like, copying and diffusing mm-hmm. Jeff has a take, he has some interesting ways of measuring this, that today China is actually, in a proportional sense, better at innovation and worse at diffusion. And that one big strength that the United States has from a competitive angle is that it's actually much better at diffusion. And I think that will strike a lot of people as being the inverse of what they think yeah. based on having read some like stories about uh, high-speed rail and solar cell production mm-hmm. and so on that they have this meme of like China can copy these things and sort of suffuse it like across the country um, and reduce the cost of production, but it isn't able to create things. And so I think that that's an area where like th- that that stereotype, I can see where it came from based on the specific economic investments that China made in the 90s and 2000s. But I think it is like inaccurate and 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 people sort of risk misunderstanding like how
1: things look if they buy into that. The most promising regulatory approaches. I think there are a few
2: sort of like level zero foundational things that make sense to do. One is at the moment, especially in the West, there are major disconnects between just even the way that people in government use language and think about things relative to the way that people in the in the tech world do. And so one important step zero is just increasing communication between labs and governments. And I think recently there's been a lot of like positive movement in that direction. Yeah. A second related thing and this somewhat ties back to these sort of democratisation questions is that even under the most competent technocracy I'd be worried about a process that doesn't involve a significant amount of public consultation, given how general purpose these systems are and how pervasive the effects that they could have on our lives will be. And so I think that government has a lot of work to do, both in terms of reaching out to and engaging the AI community, and also in terms of engaging the general public. There's been a lot of cool work in this direction recently. I'd highlight what the Collective Intelligence Project has undertaken. They've led a series of what they call alignment assemblies, essentially exercises designed to engage Large, ideally representative subsets of the population with questions about what kinds of AI things worry you the most, and also recently from labs, there's been some interest in this stuff. So um, OpenAI has this sort of democratic input for AI uh, sort of grant that they've uh, that people have just applied for, uh, and then also there are several labs uh, that are working on projects in the vein of sort of some stuff we were talking about before. How can AI itself be used to, in particular, LLMs? How can we use these to sort of facilitate larger scale deliberative processes than before. Um, and one of the projects I worked at when I was at DeepMind and I'm actually still collaborating with some of my former colleagues at DeepMind on is, is something in this direction. So that would be some sort of like very basic before even landing on a policy stuff that I think is important. Beyond that, I think that there are some areas that are relatively uncontroversially good. So to the extent that we think that AI will at some level be a public good and that private market incentives will not sufficiently incentivize the kind of safety and ethics research that we want to happen. I think that like allocating some public funding for that stuff is a good idea. Um, And that's sort of like the full gamut of X risk alignment things, uh, sort of like more present day prosaic ethics impact considerations, interpretability research, sort of like the full list. And a final thing that I think is as close to a no brainer as you can get is that uh, clearly some kind of clearer Benchmarking and standards regime is important because right now it's sort of the Wild West and these things are just out there and people, not only is it difficult to measure what these things can and cannot do, but there is almost nothing in the way of widely known trusted intermediary certifications that a non-expert user can engage with to get a feel for how and when they should use a given system. Mm. And so there are a whole bunch of different proposals. Some involve the government itself setting up regulatory standards. Some involve some kind of third party verification. Um, But having something, and that could be model cards, it could be the equivalent of nutritional labels. There's kind of a whole range of options there. But at the moment, I think a lot of people are sort of flying blind.
1: Who's ultimately responsible for the consequences of AI?
0: It's, it's very unclear to me how responsibility for the consequences of AI, how that's split across various different parts of the of the U.S. government. It feels a bit like there's no identifiable actor who really get, has to think about this holistically. Is is that right? Yes, uh, this is true, <laughs> uh, and in part this gets back to this issue of um,
2: AI is a new b so general that it challenges the taxonomy of government stuff and see something that government has not until recently engaged with meaningfully in its current form so you know various government research projects throughout time have used some kind of ai but government w- w- was not really in any meaningful way driving the past decade of machine learning progress mm. and all of this means that there are a ton of open questions about how government thinks about AI-related responsibilities and where those sit.
0: Okay, so who are the different players, though, who at least um, are responsible for some aspect of this?
2: So... Within the White
0: House, the sort of main groups would be the Office of
2: Science and Technology Policy, where I worked before. That within it has a number of different teams, um, several of which are quite interested in AI. There is one small group that is explicitly dedicated to AI. There is a national security team, that was where I sat, that handles a lot of AI-related things. And then there is the science and society team, that was the team that produced the blueprint for the AI Bill of Rights. Each of these groups, they, they work together quite a fair bit, and each one has sort of like a slightly different outlook and set of priorities related to AI. Then you have the National Security Council, which has a tech team within it that also handles a fair amount of AI stuff. At the highest level, OSDP historically has been a bit more long-run conceptual research-y, putting together sort of like big plans for, you know, what the government's position should be on, approach to funding cures for a given disease, let's say. And the NSC has traditionally been a bit more close to the decision making of senior leaders um, and that has the benefit of in some immediate sense being higher impact but also being more reactive and less long run thinking wise. Mm-hmm. Um, again these are, like huge generalizations um, but those are sort of two of the groups within the White House that are especially concerned about AI. Um, these days of course because AI is on everyone's mind like every single imaginable bit of the government has like released some statement some, that like yeah. references AI but yeah. but um, in terms of the groups that sort of like have a lot of responsibility for it then Of course, there is the whole world of departments and agencies, Mm. all of which have sort of different AI related equities. So you can imagine that, uh, right, there's NIST, which I mentioned earlier, which does like regulatory stuff. Um, There's National Science Foundation, which of course funds a fair amount of AI related research. There's the Department of Energy, which runs the national labs. And so the name is is slightly misleading because they don't just do energy stuff they mostly do nuclear exactly so exactly so it's sort of funny because i think from the outside this is actually something i didn't really appreciate until i i came into government i my understanding of like the u.s bureaucracy was pretty limited uh i think in part because of missing some of the you know i didn't do all of my schooling in the u.s so the sort of basic civic education stuff a lot of it that people learn when they're like eight i didn't learn until i was sort of like uh like living it uh, in this job. Um, and so, uh, one of these things is that, yeah, the, the Department of Energy is like actually this incredibly powerful and like really, really big organization that in my mind I thought, like, oh, you know, they do like wind farms and things. But it turns out that because they're in charge of like a lot of nuclear development and security, they actually, especially in the national security space, like have, have quite a lot of authority and, and a very large budget. Of course, in addition to all the stuff in the executive, then there's Congress, which has, uh, like, at various times, sort of like thrown various AI-related provisions into these, like, absolutely massive bills and stuff. I think that so far they have, I, I believe, like both the House and the Senate have AI-focused committees or groups of some kind. I, I, I'm not super clear on what they're doing, but like obviously there is also the potential for AI-related like legislation. So yeah, the, anyway, the list goes on. As you can imagine, obviously like the Department of Defense and and the intelligence community also do various like AI-related projects. But uh, but yeah, at the moment there isn't sort of a clear coordinating entity. There there have been a number of proposals one of this ones has been the news has been uh, you know sort of Sam Altman suggested during his testimony that there'd be a new agency created to like focus specifically on AI um, I think it remains to be determined like whether that happens and what that looks like.
1: How technical experts could communicate better with policymakers? This is actually
2: something that like uh, one area that I think LLMs could be very valuable is to go back to this parallel between translation across actual languages and translation across academic or professional vernaculars. I think that we could save a lot of time by fine tuning systems to do better mappings of explain this technical AI concept to someone who is a trained lawyer <laughs> and often then you you can actually find that there are sort of these these weird overlaps not necessarily like full isomorphisms but like a lot of the conceptual tooling that people have in really different domains accomplishes similar things and can be repurposed to explain something in an area that uh, they're not too familiar with. So 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 this is an area where I think that like there is a lot of cool AI driven work that can be done in terms of practical advice to people trying to explain things. Yeah, this is tricky because there are many ways in in which, yeah, you want to frame things differently. And I'm trying to think of a set of like principles that capture these, because a lot of it is just like very specific word choice. Maybe a, a few off the top of my head would be, one, just try reading, like read, read political news and and read some policy documents to get a feel for like how things are typically described. and And that should like be a decent start. Two, I think in general in policy space, you want to reduce the use, obviously of technical language, but even of sort of philosophical type abstraction uh, that is is very, can be helpful in a lot of other domains. And so the more that things can be grounded in concrete concepts and also incentives that will be familiar to people. So in the policy space, a lot of that has to do with, you know, Think about what the domestic and foreign policy considerations are that are relevant to this. I mean, it obviously it depends on the group. Like, is it a group of senators or, or, or people at OSTP or, or, or something? But like, broadly speaking, if you if you read political news, you'll get a sense of like, what people care about. A lot of people are like really worried about competition with China, for better or worse. The more that you can sell something as being in service of an agreed upon priority. So like like one, to, to, to ground this, like one example here would be to the extent that the framing of China competition is inevitable, one can harness that to make the case that, for instance, leading in AI safety is an area that could be excellent for like the scientific prestige of a country, right? And could like improve the brand of a place where things are done safely and reliably and, you, and where you can trust services and so on. Like You you can take something that otherwise a policymaker might dismiss as like heady techno-utopianism. And if you are willing to cheapen yourself a little bit in terms of how to sell it, you know, you can get more attention. Obviously, this is a sliding scale and you can, you know, you don't want to take it too far. But I think a lot can be accomplished by thinking about like what the local political incentives are that people have.
1: Tension between those focused on X-risk and those focused on AI ethics.
2: I have maybe sort of a, a few, a few low confidence thoughts. So one is... Yeah, there, there are some areas where there is, I think the perception of some finite resource and maybe that's money or maybe it's attention. And I think there is an understandable concern on the AI ethics side that there is sometimes a totalizing quality to the way that some people worry about existential risks. Mm. and And that can, at its best, I think that that stuff is... Uh, you know, x risk concern is expressed in ways that are like appropriately caveated and so on. And I think at its worst, it it, it can be sort of, it can imply that nothing else matters <laughs> mm. um, because of sort of like r- running some set of hypothetical numbers. Personally, like I, I'm I'm sort of a, a bit of a pluralist. And so uh, like, I don't think that like, like everything comes down to, to utils. And I think that like, yeah, the outlook of, look, like, if you reduce existential risk by x percent, then this like so dwarfs every other concern uh, is something that I, I, like I can see why that rubs people the wrong way. A second thing that I think sometimes brings some of these views or these communities into conflict is the idea that there are some types of behavior, whether that's from labs or um like proposed policies, that could help. i'm I'm in particular thinking of things that would have, some security benefits that people who are concerned about X risk value very highly, um, but it might come at the cost of other things that we value in a pluralistic society. So, for instance, openness and competition. The, a, a lot of the the policies that we haven't talked about yet, because so far we've been focusing on sort of no-brainer, almost everyone should, should get behind these. Um, there are a lot of very tricky ones that you can see a case for and you can see a case against. And often they pit these values against one another. If you're really, really, really worried about existential risk, then it's better to have fewer entities that are coordinating stuff and to have those be like fairly consolidated and to work very closely with the government. If you don't take existential risk that seriously, and if instead you are comparatively more worried about having a flourishing and open scientific ecosystem, making sure that small players can have access to uh, sort of like cutting edge models and capabilities um, and so on and a lot of these things historically have correlated with like the health of open and distributed societies then those policies look really really different and I think that the question of how do we grapple with these sort of like competing interests is a really difficult one and I worry that at its worst the ex-risk community which which broadly I should say like I, I think like does like lots of excellent work and and like, has put its finger on like very 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 real concerns but I think at at its worst there can be this sort of like totalizing attitude that maybe refuses to grapple with a different set of frameworks for like uh, like assessing these issues and i think that's sometimes exacerbated by the fact that it is on average not a super representative community uh geographically or ethnically and and what have you and i think that that means that it's easy to be Blind to some of the things that other people, for good reason, are, are worried about. That would be like, I guess, my my sort of like very high level framing of it. But at the bottom line is that I I very much agree with your sentiment that like most of the conflict between these groups is like counterproductive, and that there is a huge amount of you know if we're talking about the difference between like pie splitting and pie expansion, there's a huge amount of pie expansion and a whole bunch of policies that should be in sort of the, the, the collective interest and, and I'd very much encourage people, especially since I think this is a the the listenership here is, is probably a little bit more sort of like EA skewed. Um like I'd very much encourage people to engage with I mean this this sounds so trite but like yeah yeah like really really to listen to some of the claims from from the non X AI ethics community because like th- there is a lot of very valuable stuff there and and sort of like very and different it's just kind of like a different perspective on some of these issues.